0: Turn to James. Here we go. What is the sermon focus? Anybody remember? It's so easy. It's on the screen. Well done. Yes, lacking nothing. And I've asked you multiple times in the past if you've ever heard a sermon out of James with that title. i would never heard a, a, a title, but you'll find it right in that first chapter. And the reason that we love the book of James has everything to do with the fact that it's practical, right? Sometimes it's hard, as they say, to see the forest through the trees. Sometimes it's hard for us to understand how do we serve God? How do we obey God? How do we thrive in our spiritual walk? And James does a great job in walking us through that. And so we love the book of James. Today we're talking about favoritism, chapter 2. And as we do so, I want to run a couple statements by you this morning. I love that picture. Uh, Probably if you had more than one child, somebody probably felt that way with your kids. Uh, Maybe you felt that way growing up. Uh, But this morning when we talk about the idea of favoritism, I want us to compare it to the contrast of, you know, lacking in nothing, we have to understand that even something that seems so simple, we might say it's hard to pull this out of the Ten Commandments, or it's, it's hard to pull this out of the Sermon of the Mount, it's hard to, where, where do we get this idea that favoritism is an issue to the Lord, and James does a great job explaining this in this passage and we'll we'll circle back to it but I want you to think about these statements. I've got three statements here. One is just a quote. <clears throat> I went back to Junior High there. Sorry about that. <laughs> so Tony Gaskins has this quote and he says everybody needs you. You feel that way this week? Everybody needs you, but you need you first. How many of you read a book like that? How many of you received advice like that? You gotta take care of you, right? You gotta take care of you. Don't help everybody else, but neglect yourself. That sounds like some practical wisdom. Then he says, Love your neighbor as you love yourself, not instead of yourself. Now, some of that I think is some really good wisdom. Other parts of what Gaskins is saying, I think, has to be measured. With Scripture, So let me give you two other quotes here. So out of Mark 10, 45, Mark wrote down Peter's thoughts, in case you weren't aware of that. So this is really coming from Peter. He says, for even the Son of Man came not to be what? Served, but to what? Jesus, you need to, let me quote Gaskins. Gaskins counseling Jesus somewhere around the north of Garden of Gethsemane at a nice falafel stand. They're breaking falafel together. They're having some hot mint tea, and Gaskins turns to Jesus and says, you know, Jesus, you really need to think of yourself. How does that fit? And yet, we love the practical part of Gaskins' statement, don't we? Because we're exhausted. And there is a measure of truth about how is it that we can reach out and encourage and feed And carry others if we're not where we need to be. Here's the difference. Jesus was where he needed to be. Jesus was continually drawing upon the power of his Father. But there were moments where Jesus evacuated, even though there was still more work to do. There were moments where Jesus was curled up in the back of the boat when we needed everybody to start bailing out the water, right? Especially the guy that could have just made it evaporate if he wanted to. So, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the rich. Gave his life as a ransom for the white, rich, privileged, evangelical church of America. I'm sorry, was that a little rough? Well, since about 30% of you don't fit that category, I see some smiles on some faces and I see some grimaces on others. Jesus came for mankind. And as we have been in an onslaught of information, rhetoric, dialogue about racism and the value of human life over the past couple of of years in the news. What a beautiful statement. That Jesus came for many, or you could supplant that without discretion. Right? John twelve three. 3. It's the picture of being up in the little village, the little burg of Bethany on the backside of the Mount of Olives. Jesus has prepared, he's come up. Uh, through Jericho and through the um, Wadi Celt with his disciples and he's come up for the Passion Week. And you know the story, right? Martha's in there doing dishes and she gets a little ticked at her sister and Lazarus is is reclining with Jesus and Mary breaks the jar that really ticks off Judas. All so much drama on one night. So Jesus... Obviously, when it comes to favoritism and what we're going to hear, turns to Mary and says, what were you thinking? Don't you know that that could have... Oh, wait, was it, wasn't it James that just said in verse 27 that true religion is taking care of widows and orphans? Mary, what were you thinking? I'm about to go die anyway, so you, you wasted that, Mary. We could have taken care of how many widows and orphans? Oh, wait, that wasn't Jesus that said that. Who was it? It was Judas. Jesus, instead, the story says, Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. I, You know, I'm not going to get into what nard is. You can look it up, but... Let's just keep moving. And anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. She didn't hold back. She showed. Could you not argue she showed favoritism? She took it upon herself, not being one of the apostles, to take one of their most treasured and most valued things and break it. She didn't ask anybody's permission as evidenced by one of the gospel accounts, that all the disciples were displeased with Mary. She took it upon herself to break it and show favoritism and worship to Jesus Christ. So have I completely confused you when it comes to favoritism versus fraternity? When I speak about the word fraternity, the concept is unity, all right? A fraternal love for one another. And that's what James is having to address. To give you some backstory, this is one of the first letters that was put together in the New Testament, James being the brother of Jesus. And what's happened within the church is that they're starting to pick sides. They're picking traditions, they're picking theologies, and they're starting to divide amongst each other. And so James comes in and he starts speaking to those issues that are tearing the church apart. So that's, that's where I get the idea of fraternity because it's at stake when it comes to favoritism. Because we know that the church is free from these problems. This happened for a century, right? We, we learned from what they did. Because we're all about that. We're all about being better than the previous generation. And... Yet, what are we dividing over today? Why is it the Arabic church isn't packed? Why is it that Pastor now 's church isn't packed? Why is it that... The Indian fellowship isn't packed. Why is it we have empty seats this morning when this was free? We weren't charging. Walk in the door, sit down, enjoy, stay dry. At least for that matter, right? Because we're divided. Because we're divided. Let's get into the details this morning. Let me, um, let me read the passage. We're going to be verses 1 through 13. And we're going to move quickly at this point. So James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. James says this, My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in a shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. I'm just going to ask right now, Chuck, where's the best place to sit? There you go. (laughs) Chuck's got it. He's got the best seat in the house. You're in a good place. Why, you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions? Hmm. Remember that word. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Who is it that we would question in our church? Honestly, I will tell you that I feel like you've had testimony already this morning from those that are serving in other capacities, in other fellowships, and you've heard testimony from them. I didn't tell them what to say. I run a huge risk in doing that, right? I didn't tell them what to say, and yet each of them saw how they're accepted by this local body. And there's importance and freedom and support given to them by this local body. The distinction that we practice here is the love of Christ, is mercy over judgment. This is the distinction that we focus on. And so if there is something that's causing division, we're going to focus on who has the larger group, who has the money, who looks better, who smells better, who acts better. I remember somebody came in, this is going back five years ago, and I was standing back there towards the end of service, And there was a gal who was saying extra words during the singing, extra words. And it was so funny because people were like, what is that? What are those extra words? Uh Uh-oh, somebody want to hit the charismatic button, alarm, Uh uh-oh. No, y'all did fine. But she was really demonstrative, which was different for us, right? But nobody told her to be quiet. Nobody censored her. Nobody shushed her. As a matter of fact, some of you all started saying different words like, I'm out of here. No, you didn't say that. It's good every once in a while to have someone walk through the door that you're unfamiliar with. Amen? We had a gal walk through the door who is blind about four weeks ago. And you guys took her under your wing and you made sure that she found her place And as she sat down while I'm preaching, she's signing. And I'm like, well, hang on, how's that work? You're blind, but you're signing. She's taking notes. How incredible is that? And yet, any of you would have given up your seat if she wanted it. Because we don't distinguish, based off of character traits, socioeconomic, skin color... Everybody who walks through this door walks through as as one who is seeking God in one way or another and deserves mercy over judgment. Amen? So let me finish the passage. He says, you sit here in a good place. You stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones those who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called, if You really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality or distinction, you are committing sin. This is one of the few areas in the New Testament where literally the language says you are committing sin. And I think James understands if he's going to buy into that, if he's going to be that specific, he's going to get some blowback. As this, as this letter is read. And he's ready for the blowback. So what does he do? Buckle up. He knows you're going to want to resist that statement. So he addresses it without you ever even verbalizing it. But he knows what you're thinking. So he says, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law of transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in how many points? One point has become accountable for all of it. And there, there is a three-part series just in that verse, and I'm, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to get an amen. We're just going to stay on point. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. What is James's point? Because it gets a little confusing there. Murder, adultery, I don't don't do those things. That's his exact point. He's using what we interpret as the extreme offenses, the extreme sins, where we've convinced ourselves we're righteous people. And yet he says it is sinful for you to classify distinction between those around you. To lay out privilege to those who are going to give you advantage in life. Those who have something for you, you see how the selfishness creeps in, we'll get to it in a second. And so he wraps up the concept, he says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty or freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And what a beautiful conclusion, he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. That should be your takeaway today. Let me get into some specifics. Favoritism speaks to agenda and not the power of the gospel. Do you see that? Favoritism speaks to agenda. Favoritism is about self so much of the time. If I were going to say, Dodgers are giants, what would you say? (laughs) I knew it. I knew it, perfect illustration. Thank you, Carl. By the way, that is permissible. You have permission to have a favorite team as long as you're not fighting someone from the other side or you are showing up in a non-Christlike manner at a viewing party or at the stadium, right? Causing shame. Now, I'm, I'm listing something that is just a nondescript issue. But when it comes to our issues, even within church, we have favorite music, don't we? We have favorite speakers. We have favorite ministries. We're willing to go to the mat for those things. And so this is what James is describing. He's saying you're allowing these things to cause division. You're allowing these things by your own selfish focus to cause what? A breakup in the unity of the body. So when we think about favoritism, favoritism speaks to agenda and not the power of the gospel. Favoritism is about self. The gospel is about freedom for all who believe. Amen? Favoritism, the second point, and by the way, we do have sermon notes. You can fill in these blanks if you want. I see some of you writing fast and furiously. Over here, the the lawyer group is on top of it. It's fantastic. Um, The Bible study group back there is is locked in. It's fantastic. And all you esoteric free thinkers have your hands folded. God bless you. Mercy is greater than judgment. Let's move on. (laughs) Favoritism leans on a false sense of hope. When will I learn the angels will not win? Not like the heavenly angels, but my baseball team, the angels. Some of you are like, what's your theology here, Pastor Jeremy? <laughs> no, the, the baseball angels. They're my favorite team. I love them. And yet we lose all the time. I hear your amens, Jim Isham. You A's fan. Favoritism leans on a false sense of hope on a serious level. How many times have you left a church because you thought it was going to be this? And your hope was broken. How many times have we committed ourselves to a church because they do our favorite things? And then all of a sudden there's a shift. Now I will tell you, there is an appropriate time. If a church values judgment over mercy, do you think it's time to go maybe? Because they're not holding to the power of the gospel. They're holding to the favorite things that either leadership holds or values for themselves, or that some power players in the congregation hold and value to themselves. But the unity is already broken based off of bad doctrine and disobedience to the Lord, and as James would say, committed sin. So it's even worse when we lean on the hope of self service. In light of what? Suffering. Do you remember how we kicked off our missions month? A $3,300 check to World Vision the very first Sunday of missions month to help the refugees in Haiti because of the earthquake. And over and over we put that power, that, that resource into your hands to reach out to people that you know that are suffering. Your church leadership takes this seriously. And you're gonna hear in just a moment about one of the ways that we partner with a local ministry that reaches out to anybody who walks through the door that needs mercy instead of judgment. We're proud of who we partner with. And this is how you support those things. Moving on. Oh, this is moving a little too slow. Here we go. Loving my neighbor as myself requires the abolition of favor. Did you hear James' comments, how he brought in the royal law? You can't claim Jesus and the gospel and the power of the gospel and be living in obedience if what you're going to do is distort who you're going to give that gospel to. One of the things I find fascinating is that Jesus was asked, who is my neighbor? He could have mentioned anybody. How many of you have ever wanted to move because of your neighbor? Right? Yes, that's the power of renting. Right? I think some of our neighbors want to move now based off of my dog. Jesus could have chosen anybody to fit that slot. And yet he chose someone in the illustration of the good Samaritan who represented the least of these, who showed mercy instead of judgment. That's who Jesus considers connected to the royal law. Hanny, do me a favor. we got a lot of fans moving in this room. Can you go ahead and turn on the air for us? Imagine that. We're going to have to turn on the air conditioning. Because some of you are fanning yourselves, and some of you have already fallen asleep four times. And I've only been preaching for 20 minutes. Loving my neighbor as myself requires the abolition of favor. It's really hard to drive by someone who's in need or support things that maybe politically aren't popular or to invite other churches to be part of this place and share our resources. When What happens if our carpet gets a stain on it We clean it. Hello? We just clean it. How many of you abolished your children when they spilled Kool-Aid on the sofa? That's it. You're out of here. Gonzo. You're going to feel it when you don't get that rent from them. Loving my neighbor as myself. Let me give you three closing thoughts here. Because if we don't look to Jesus as the example, the author and perfecter of our faith, we're just going to lean back to our own tendencies, right? And so Jesus, when he says, love your neighbor as yourself, gives the demonstration of who? The Good Samaritan. But that was a story. It's one thing to tell a story. It's a completely different thing to live it. Jesus is walking through Jericho, and there's this... As I learned in Sunday school many years ago, an itty-bitty man, and his name is Zacchaeus, and he's not real popular. As a matter of fact, he's probably the most hated man in the town. But he's fascinated as to who Jesus is. And so he's so fascinated, he can't see, he's impaired, so he does what? Climbs a tree. Oh, there it is, the Sycamore tree from the A.G. Princess, right there. See, I made a distinction so Zacchaeus does that. And what does Jesus say? Hey, how are you doing, Zac? Just keeps walking. What we might look at is, as being examples of the gospel is we stand under the tree and we ask Zacchaeus to come down and we say, hey, Zacchaeus, do you have any questions? Is there anything I can do for you, Zacchaeus? Do you need a falafel? What do what you need, Zacchaeus? Is that what Jesus did? I don't know why I'm tapping my junior high self there again. Is that what Jesus did? He said, Zacchaeus, get down here, because we're going to your house. This is where the church often fails. Are we willing to go to the house of the person that's desperately in need? Or do we say, come here, come here where it's more comfortable and it's easy and, and we'll feel good about that because we're going to help you. Do we go to their house? What did Jesus say at the end of that? Glory be to heaven because today the salvation of the Lord has come to what? This house. You want to be someone who holds the gospel, you got to get dirty just like Jesus did. Secondly, Jesus and the Samaritan woman in John 4, you're you're very aware of this, but Jesus says something very profound here to her that we need to take note of. Jesus breaks the culture and he resets the standard. They discuss the, the favoritism of the Samaritans versus the Jews, of the tendencies of worship. We have to worship at Jacob's well, as our fathers say, But your people say we have to worship there at the temple. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I perceive you to be a wise man, so tell me, what are we supposed to do? And what does Jesus say? He resets the entire culture. He says, behold, a time is coming, and even now where the true worshippers shall what? Worship in spirit and in truth. Oh, wait. We're just supposed to do that? How, can you please give me an order of worship where we know that you know, at this time we're going to bang the tambourine and at this time we're going to take an offering and at this time we're going to... Because that works a little bit more with my schedule and how I worship. Jesus broke down the entire culture. He says, what I want is I want any worshiper who will worship the Father, the true Father, in spirit and in truth. That's what my Father is looking for. No favorites, breaks it down, equal access to everybody. Jesus and the other sheep out of John 10, 16, is the famous passage where he talks about how Israel are his sheep. But interestingly enough, in verse 16, he says, Behold, there are what? Other sheep. And I'm going to give access to the other sheep because there are no favorites in God's economy. There are no favorites in God's economy. Your takeaway today is this idea. There is one permissible area for favoritism. What do you think it is? It's Jesus Christ. That should be your favorite, all right? That's where you get to play favorites. Remember who Jesus gave as an example when asked, Who is my neighbor? It wasn't a real sanitary, easy situation that he gave as an example. And not only did he give it as an example, he did what? He lived it. He lived it. So I encourage you from his words, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. And this morning in close, my encouragement to you is precise, but somewhat simple. Um, In thinking through... All that you heard this morning, my question to you is, do you remember that mercy triumphs over judgment? Because if you do, you've captured what James is trying to instruct us on, and you'll be lacking in nothing. Let me pray, and then we have a video that we're going to watch as we move forward in worship. Lord God, take what was stated today, move beyond my inabilities or my challenges of communication. Let your spirit take uh, the seed of the word and cultivate it within our hearts and our lives. So as we move forward, we're actually able to address from a biblical idea, from a godly idea, from a kingdom idea, these challenges that are surrounding us all over the place concerning socioeconomic, political, Cultural or racial tensions and help us to live out the understanding that mercy triumphs over judgment. Thank you, Lord God, that I can look at my brothers and sisters and know that we have practiced this. We may not be perfect at it. We may not even be great at it. But we want to move in that direction and we have legacy that shows that we have been about this. I praise you for that, Father continue to do your work within our body, both here and at home. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.